constantly getting bombarded. We were, quote, constantly running, constantly scared. In all nations, Lord God, it's happening in other nations too. So, Lord, your church is there. Your church is in that country. I pray for those who are your people and, and that they hold their strength and spread the word and give everyone a peace of mind, if nothing else. And Lord, I pray that you make a switch in powers, that you you wield your hand and you have control of the nations and you have control of those who are in power. And I rest on that, Lord. I rest on that. I, I ask questions, but I rest on that. So this morning, Lord, give a, each of us an angle or a different way to pray for the Ukraine, to cover them with our prayer, with our love, with our, our courage, and uh, just bless the people. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. So we had some friends uh, a few years back, at least, this is at least 10 years ago, they were in Europe, and they were visiting, you know, you go, if you go to Europe, you go to all the places, all the, the old places, the, the cathedrals, the, the, the historic sites, and they were at a cathedral, and I can't remember what, what type of church it was, but it was this beautiful church that had been built um, probably hundreds of years before. And they're taking a tour of the cathedral. And they're, they're Christian uh, friends of ours who are Christians. And they're like, they asked the tour guide, they're like, hey, when, when's a, a church service? Could we come to a church service? And the tour guide said, oh, there's no more church services here. The, the, the church is, is now a museum. And they were just, just awestruck. I mean, this, this beautiful, beautiful building that had built, been built for the, the worship of God and worship was not occurring there anymore it was a thing of the past when i think of that story i think of the phrase post-christian nation or post-christianity and post-christian like this go ahead and put that on the board trevor post-christianity is the situation in which christianity is no longer the dominant civil religion of a society but has gradually assumed cult, uh, values, cultures, culture, and worldviews that are not necessarily Christian. So a post-Christian nation is a nation that once was Christian, predominantly, according to this uh, definition. It was very Christian at some point in time. The majority of the people in the country were Christians. Um, they probably went to church, but then over time, that you know, as, as culture changed society, as time went on, it became less and less Christian to the point where it's a post-Christian nation. It's post-Christianity. Some of you guys probably, in the last couple months, I've shared this stat because I just can't shake it. But in 2020, right, uh, um, a Gallup poll was, was uh, released Pre-COVID in 2020, that, that America had slipped below the line of 50% of, of people saying they attend church. That, that we are no longer, what is, it, what is the phrase? That Christianity is no longer, the, uh, um, what is it? Christianity is, oh no, no, go back one. 
that, that Christianity is no longer the dominant civil religion. I don't know what the civil religion would be in place of Christianity right now in America, but in America, the do, we are like Christianity is no longer the dominant worldview. The people, as as people slide and slip, uh, and church attendance has gone under fifty percent. Another way to put this in perspective, because this has been happening for the last twenty years, and what's interesting is that I, I, I'm dying to see the new stat, the the post-COVID stat of church attendance. Because you guys have heard me say probably in the last year, I, I personally think that like whatever slip was happening has just been fast-forwarded 10 years in the last two. Uh, that's my personal theory. We'll see what happens when the stats come out about church attendance. But I think it's safe to say it's well below 50%. And this has been happening. We lost 20, we lost 20% in 20 years. In, in around, right around 2000, that same poll was done, and it was at 70%, and then at 2020, it was 50%. I think it's safe to say that we are finding ourselves comfortably in a post-Christian nation here in the United States. And in, when, there's a, when you're in a post-Christian nation, this is kind of what it's like. There are Bibles everywhere. <laughs> Everybody's within reach of a Bible right now. A lot of people probably have them in their houses. If not, everybody has them on their phone, but nobody's reading them, right? In a post-Christian nation, there are churches on every corner, and yet it's possible to have towns like Evergreen where, like, literally 80 to 90% of people don't go to church. Like, that's, that's, it's possible, even though there's churches everywhere. In a post-Christian nation, everybody's heard of this guy, Jesus. Jesus, in fact, he's kind of everywhere. Right? He's kind of all over popular culture. You've got Jesus Christ Superstar. You've got Bobblehead Jesus. You've got Black Jesus, Korean Jesus, South Park Jesus. I even saw a sticker with Jesus doing the dab the other day. You know? Jesus is everywhere. Everybody knows who he is. And yet it's rare to find somebody who's actually studied the Jesus of the Gospels. Our, our foremost uh, uh, source for, for the, Jesus Christ is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the guys who hung out with him, eyewitnesses to what he did. And very, very few people are familiar, very familiar with that. I remember this happened in the last couple of years. I was in a religious panel at Evergreen High School. I love doing that. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's been years since I've been able to do it. But we were there, and there's all sorts of, there's, there's rabbis and Muslim imams and Buddhist monks, and all, like, like, that's like half of them. And then the other half is all of these different representatives from Christianity, because Christianity, it, at one point in time, was the predominant uh, civil religion in the United States. So there's a lot of expressions of it, including some more liberal Christians, Christians that maybe don't believe that Jesus was the son of God or rose from the dead or, or, or whatever. And I remember I was talking with two, two of these, and, and I love these conversations, and, and I'll talk, I was talking with two ladies that were from more of a liberal Christianity, one young and one, a little bit, uh, one, one young and one a little older. And we're talking, and we're talking about, um, I don't know how we got onto it, but like, like another religion, I won't name it, but like where the, the leader of the religion was kind of a shyster. You know, and I was like, what do you guys think of that? Like, this, this, this guy was kind of a shyster, you know. And, and the younger 
of the, the women who goes to a seminary that will remain unnamed here in town. She was studying in, at a seminary here in town. And she's like, she kind of cut me off because she, she didn't like the fact that I was calling this religious leader a shyster. You know, he kind of is. And, and she's like, well, wasn't Jesus a shyster too? I was like, oh, my goodness. You're in seminary. And this seminary, that seminary that she goes to has Christian roots. This is what it's like to be in a post-Christian nation. In a post-Christian context, there's kind of this been there, done that type of attitude, right? A vague familiarity and even maybe a fondness towards the church and towards Christian values. But like, I, I don't want to get too close to it. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's some sort of connection that, that maybe they were baptized as a kid or they have an uncle who is a pastor. Or they went to camp as a teenager and they have some sort of connection, but they don't have a strong connection now. You get the idea of what it means to be part of a post-Christian nation. And, and here's the thing is, is as, here's what we need to be careful as a church, and this is how it ties into what we were talking about last week. I'll get there in a second. But as, as, as our, our, our culture trends away from Christianity, faith, Christ himself, we have to be careful as a church that we're not immune to the slip. We're not immune to, like, as, as in a sense, like, as it's not in vogue to be Christian anymore, as it's not, you know, like, the predominantly, it's just, like, the way of the cultures, it's this Christian culture. As culture becomes less and less Christian, it means that in order to be Christian and to remain Christian is going to become more and more countercultural, right? This is just, I mean, it's just natural. It's going to be harder to, to, to be an authentic Christian if you're the only one at work that's doing it, which maybe you are, right? If you're the only one in your friend groups that would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, they're like, ooh, interesting. That it, it, it would put some pressure, some, you could call it peer pressure. It's not the cool thing anymore. And if it is now, it might not be in 10 or 20 years. And there's this, and, and, and we have to be careful of what might happen as we slip. And the church, in, 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 out of a good heart a lot of times, has said, yeah, 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 we're cool too. Hey, we're not that different from you. As we're trying to reach the culture, we actually like tr become more like it, and we start to assimilate. Like, hey, it, it's just church. You know, the church is not that big deal. Come on in. Like, like you, you can get used to it. You can, th there's something for you here. And if we slip too far, we might lose being authentically Christian. This is, there's a quote from this uh, guy named Rod Dreher that I want to put on the board. A church, uh, yeah, do that one. A church that looks and talks and sounds just like the world has no reason to exist. When you, when you look at the churches in Europe that don't have church services anymore, and you think, how does that happen? That's how that happens. Is the church over time just, hey, no, we're cool. We're cool too. We, we can hang. When a church looks and talks and sounds just like the world, it has no reason to exist. And, and it perpetuates the cycle. Why attend? If you and I are just like each other, then why do I need, why do I need to block off my Sunday morning? Right? Here's another quote from Rod Dreher. Christians often talk about reaching the culture without realizing that having no distinct Christian culture of their own 
they have been co-opted by the secular culture that they wish to evangelize. The answer to a post-Christian nation is for us to become more sacred, more Christian, or at least maintain authentic Christianity. And you guys know me, like I'm not the type of person that's like, woe is the world, we need to separate it like we do. But that there is this point where we have to be careful. We don't lose ourselves while we're trying to help people find, help people find God, you know, helping them find God. We can't lose ourselves. And that's why this series is so important is, is I want us to realize that, that while this trend is happening, we are not immune to it. Is it possible that Jesus has more to teach us <laughs> as Christians? Is it possible that we as a church need to become more authentically Christian and, and, and as individuals that we have more that we can devote to God to be a Christ follower? See, we're in this series called raw material and it's this whole idea that if you no matter what age you are young old in between you the more that you give god to work with the more he'll work with you i, I believe it's this premise the the big idea is kind of is basically this the one who gives him the most sees the most the one who gives God the most to work with in their lives, set, setting aside time, praying, committing to, to be obedient to his law, knowing what his word says, loving somebody else even when it hurts. You know, all of these things. These are all ways that we can be generous towards God. The person who's more the, the generous the most gets to see God the most. And I talked about this last week, how we can kind of be in a stalemate sometimes with God. You know, stalemates like that chess phrase and there can get a point in chess where you there's no move anymore or there's like moves in perpetuity like they just keep each side keeps guarding the queen and nobody's gonna win and it's easy to feel that way with God like hey God it's your move some of you might be thinking that this week like God if you're real I why don't you do this or if you showed up in this way then I would and I'm trying to shift that attitude to a more generous one. What would happen if we shifted to be more generous towards God? And, of course, that includes our money, but that's like 10% of what we're talking about in generosity towards God. It's this idea of, like, give God something to work with. The person who sees God, God the most work in their lives is the person who's like, God, I, I, I'm going to trust you on this. God, I'm going to go there. God, I'm going to ask her. I'm, God, I'm, I'm not afraid to, or I am afraid. God, I am afraid to, but I'm going to anyway. And the more we give God to work with, it's like fodder for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And we talked about this, that generosity, like basically I, I proposed last week that generosity is really at the heart of the life of faith. That at the beginning of the life of it, in fact, the very beginning, even just saying, God, I'm not sure about this, but, but I, I trust you and I confess my sin to you and I want to follow Christ. That's a, that's a form of generosity, a big form. You're, like we've, we've maybe even heard the phrase if you grew up in church, giving Jesus your heart, giving God your life. This is the language we use. It starts with generosity. But anytime, and you know you're being generous when? You feel vulnerable. That is a horror. Like, can you even read that? 
I wrote it last week while we were talking about it, but that says vulnerable. And you know you're being generous, and this is, this is any relationship, this is any, if you, if you go to a, a fundraiser and you're like, I'm going to write a check for $1,000, like for a lot of us, that would make us feel vulnerable, right? Because we're giving a lot, and you know you're being generous when you feel vulnerable, but vulnerability offers us the opportunity to step out in faith and, and say, okay, I, I, faith is, as, as the Bible defines it, as uh, hope of what is not yet seen. I hope that this is a good idea. I hope that God steps in. I hope that God shows up. That's, where, that's, that, that's when we're doing something of faith. And, but faith, when we step out in faith, it allows God to prove himself trustworthy. And guess what happens to our faith? It grows. I stepped out in faith, and he showed up. Thank you, Lord. And then the whole cycle starts again. We have another chance to be generous, and it makes us feel vulnerable, and we step out in faith, and then we, we see that God is trustworthy. And we said last week that trust is at the basis of every relationship. The foundation of every good relationship is someone you trust. It's, it, it's, trust is at the center of it, and it's the same with God. So the goal for this series is pretty simple. Give God more to work with, each of us. And, and what's cool about this is we're, we're talking about application. I always try to, like, like when, whenever I preach, I try to give us something to do about it, right? What's cool about this is I have no clue how, what, what's working in your heart right now and how, what God might work in your heart to bring about. I have a feeling that if we did an open mic next week, if all of us went out and gave God something more to work with this week and then came back and did open mic, we might want to do that next week, actually. It'd be fun. I think it'd all be, we'd be giving totally different things, and I think that's beautiful. I think that's really, really cool. But the goal is to give God more to work with. And the goal specifically for today is I don't, I, I, want, I don't want you to leave here today without having something in mind, even just an inkling of the direction you want to head, of what you want to give God to work with. So in order to do that, you're really, really, really going to need your Bibles. You're gonna, we're going to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. And when somebody gets to 2 Chronicles, Chronicles chapter 29. Shout out the, the page number, please. It, everybody needs a Bible right now because we're going, to, we're going to read a lot of Scripture. 2.11. That was my room in college, just so you guys know, my dorm room, 2.11. This story right here is a gem, guys. I, 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 as I was preparing for this week, I was like blown away at how much this story has to say. And what's cool about this story is you probably haven't heard it. You might not be familiar with it. It's, it's not one of the, the, um, the hits. It's, it's one of the deep cuts like we were talking about a couple months ago. Um, this is a, uh, and this is in this portion of the Old Testament, eyes up here once you get there. At this point in time in the Old Testament, the Jews had become a post-Jewish nation. They were, on, they were well on their way to becoming a post, 
Jewish nation. Now, just so you guys know, their situation, we'll see similarities between ours and theirs. Their situation's totally different. The nation of Israel, yes, there's things we can learn from it, but what God was doing in Israel in the Old Testament was one of a kind, is one of a kind, and it will probably, it will never be done again. But God had, it, it, go, let's go back to the beginning, God had found, God had called Abraham, this guy, and his wife who couldn't have kids, and he says, I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. They laughed, but God did it. Abraham had Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob had Joseph, and Joseph, uh, Joseph went to I Egypt, and then all of them went, the whole family went to Egypt, and within, I think, like 400 years, they became this mighty nation within the nation. They became slaves in that nation because that nation became afraid. Egypt became afraid of their power, so we better keep them low. We better keep them enslaved. God heard their cries, raised up Moses. This is like a blitz through the Old Testament. You, you fallen? He, he raises up Moses. Moses says, let my people go. You saw the movie maybe. Um, they let, Pharaoh says no like 18 times. Finally, God like smites him. And they get free, and he's like, all right, now that you're free, you're mine. I've bought you. I, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And what we're going to have is like nothing else. Like I just said, it's like nothing else that ever had been or ever will be with this nation, Israel. And Israel's like, yes, let's do it. Oh, what's this? Let's go worship this golden calf over here. Like five minutes later. And that's, and that's the nature of the relationship. There was give and take, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. And then they had a king, a king named David. That was about a 1,000 years before Christ. And then once they started having kid, kings, it was like a flip of a coin. Some kings were good, some kings were really bad. It was 50-50 for a while, and then it got worse. Within, a, within like two generations of David, they had a, there was a civil war. And Israel became the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It became Israel and Judah. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel went with the northern kingdom. Two of the tribes went with Judah. Uh, Judah and one other tribe, I can't remember. And that was the southern kingdom. And that's where Jerusalem was. Fast forward a couple hundred years. Things aren't going so well. They, they, they say everything about them says they're Jewish. They're, they, they become this post-Jewish nation. Everything about they're circumcised. They talk about sacrifices. They talk about the temple. They talk about all of these different things that God is with us. There's probably mention to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who we're from. Oh, David's a great guy. He was an awesome king. Solomon was mighty. It's all in their history. It's a big part of their culture. But other nations have these gods too, and it seems like those gods do a lot of good things for them. So maybe we should bring a little bit of their god into our god, and we'll just we'll mix and match a little bit. Which is really hard for us to understand. It's really hard for us to wrap our heads around like the idea of like adopting somebody else's colloquial god. But it was a really big draw in their culture. And if we were in that culture, we'd probably be right there too. There'd be something about that would draw us to it. And so they'd set up these things called Asherah poles. And they'd sacrifice their children, literally, to this God named Baal. And God saw that. And he's like, this is not what I intended. This is not the trust relationship that I set out for us to have together. And he would try to win. The, he would he'd be like, I want you to come back. And he'd let them kind of go do their thing. And let the, the, the fruits of their labor come back poisoned. And there'd be revivals every once in a while, and there'd be a king that, that, that says, this king did right in the eyes of the Lord. 
and this is where we pick up today, is, is actually there, there had been a, a line of kings. In fact, the northern kingdom at this point in time, we're, we're about 700 B.C., 700 years before Christ. David's about 1,000 years before Christ. is about 700. In that time, that north, they had that civil war. The northern kingdom was up here. The southern kingdom was down there. The northern kingdom had been completely annihilated, wiped out, and taken into exile by the Assyrians. You maybe remember, like, you remember the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. You maybe studied that in high school. Maybe you're studying it right now. But the northern kingdom had, was gone. And the southern kingdom knew that very well. They felt, they, they, they felt the squeeze. Because after the Assyrians were done with them, they started whittling away at them. And in, in response to that, the, the king before this, we're going to talk about King Hezekiah. King Ahaz, the king before that, feeling that squeeze was like, we need more gods. And so what he did, he shut up the temple. Completely just boarded it up. And he put on every corner altars to other gods. That's the context. And it didn't end well for Ahaz. And our ruler, our king Hezekiah, is this young man. He's about 25 years old. He, so he's old enough to see the fruits of that last king's labor. And he decides to do something different. And just so you guys know, Hezekiah... It brings a lot of raw material to God. He, he decides, I want to bring a lot of raw material to God. And he, he leads and encourages others to do so as well. Chapter 29, verse 1. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. Verse 2, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And if you've read, if you've read this, like up to this point, I read it this week, the, the background up to this, you read that and you, and you just kind of go, oh, finally, someone that did right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done, which is a really interesting phrase because David is not his father. <laughs> He's in the line of David. He's related to David, but how many, remember, it's like 300 years before. And what the author is saying here is, this is a king of David caliber. In the first month, catch this, verse 3. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord, and he repaired them. Guys, you need to read your Bibles more. Like, like you need to, and you need to really read them because, like, like, look at what it just said. What does that mean? In the first month and the first year, what does it mean? It's, yes. What's that? He wasted no time. He's on top of it. In the first month of the first year, he's like, I've seen what the last ruler did, and I don't want that. So here we go. You know how presidents come in, and then they, like, do all those executive orders in the first three days? This was his. I'm going to open the doors of the temple of the Lord and repair them. And he brought the, in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east side. And he said, listen to me, Levites. Now, before this, there's the priests and the Levites. You heard, you've heard of the 12 tribes of Israel, potentially? 
The Levites are not one of those tribes. They are outside of the 12 tribes. They're, and they didn't own land. They didn't have, like, they didn't have, they had, it was a totally different setup than the other 12. Because they're, the priests and the Levites were supposed to be a tribe that, that took care of the temple. That was their job. That was their profession. They didn't get paid for it. They got, the way they would get paid for it is like the sacrifices that would come. They were basically taken care of by the community, by the community worshiping. The Levites and the priests got taken care of. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that cool? God designed it that way for them. And, and, and so he called together the priests and the Levites, and he assembled them in the squares on the east side. And he said, listen to me, Levites. This is so interesting. Consecrate. Everybody say that word. Consecrate yourselves. Now, and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all of the defilement from the sanctuary. The Holy of Holies, the inside of the temple. Now, just, just a, a little refresher on the temple. This is Solomon's temple. Go ahead and put those pictures up. Solomon's temple, there's parts of Solomon's temple that exist to this day. You might know this is the Dome of the Rock. This is in Jerusalem. And that's the Temple Mount, that flat area right there, all of it. And this is a big deal, that, that there's a Muslim mosque on, uh, on what used to be a Jewish temple. And a lot of, I mean, like if a, a giant portion of the world's religions are epicentered right on this dirt. It's a big deal. Go to the next picture. This is called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. And this, this is the actual footings to the temple that Solomon built almost 1,000 years before Christ. Isn't that incredible? You can go touch that today. Well, not today, probably tomorrow if you got on a plane. But that's what they're talking about. This is, this, is, this is what we're talking about right here. He's like, guys, the temple is in disrepair. Now, it's, it was in less disrepair than it is now. It's gone now, other than this wall. That's really not a wall. It's really, they dug down because it's actually a footing. But the, he's saying, we need to do something about this. Hezekiah, why I like Hezekiah as a king, is he's not, he was the one that said, oh, no. Oh, no. Look around, look at the temple. It's in disarray. It's, what did he call it? He's like, it, it's defiled. It's been filled with all of this junk, all of this stuff that's not temple, that's not God's. Oh, no. He was the guy, in, in a time when no one was saying, oh, no, Hezekiah was willing to say, oh, no, and he was willing to do something about it, and you're going to see strong leadership through this passage. He's like, past generations have closed up the temple. They did, he, I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase what, he, what happens next, and, and then we're going to hop to the next chapter. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forsook God. And he's like, I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, and it starts with you guys. We need priests. We, it's not right, God, the way that God has set this up. No, it's not like I, as a king, can just walk in there and help out. No, I need priests. Priests are the ones that, that help with the sacrifices. They're the ones that bring the offerings. They're the ones that know the liturgy. They're the ones that know the law. And there's another, this is crazy, this, in, in a different chapter, in a couple chapters, somebody finds the law of Moses, and they're like, what is that? 
literally, they're like, what, I don't even, like, what is this? Take it to the king. And it was, it was a later king. And the king's like, someone started reading it to the king. And he tore his clothes and started to weep. And he's like, God, have mercy on us. Because we don't even know. Not only are we, like, walking by the law, we don't even recognize it when it hits us in the head. When, when it's like, our, our priests don't even know what it is. This is how post-Christian, post-Jewish they had become. And he's like, you know, I intend to make a covenant, and it starts with you guys. And it get, catch this, it took them 16 days. 16 days to clean out, just clean out the junk from the temple and throw it into the Kidron Valley, which is right next door, and they probably burned it. 16 days, and, and there's probably hundreds of priests here that he pulled together of just clearing the junk out of their life. Making it holy once again. And they started sacrifices and offerings, and they knelt down and they worshipped. And this is a beautiful chapter. It gets better in chapter 30. Check this out. Chapter 30, Hezekiah, verse 1, sent word to all of Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters. So, so he, actually, pause, pause for a second. Okay, so here's why, why we're doing this. Here's why this is so important for today. This is, this, this story, the rest of this story is, is, is a group of people who collectively said, oh no, and they want to return to God. And I want that, I want that for us. I, I, I know you, I know you, I, I know a lot of you that you follow God, that, that's your heart's desire. But the reality is, we have more we can give to God. There's more that we can dedicate. There's more that we can consecrate to him. That's going to be our word for today. And so as we do this, I'm going to, put, I'm going to start putting the verbs up here. Pay attention to the verbs of people who are returning to God. People whose desire are returning to God is to return to God. And the reason I want to pay attention to those verbs is it will help you with your verbs. Their verbs will help you with our verbs. Just pay attention to what they do. Hezekiah sent word to all of Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, which is also like, so all of Israel and Judah, so like most of Israel's gone. They, don't have, they haven't had a king in, well, I guess they just happened. They, they just lost their king in the last 20 years, but there's still some remnants. He's like, please come. The king and his officials, oh, no, no, uh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in, in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. Passover is celebrated at the same time every year. We know it as like around Easter. It's right about now that pass, somewhere in here Passover is, ex, is celebrated. This year it will be in like ne next month, right, leading up to Easter's Passover. And Passover is going back to Egypt when, when God told the Israelites, hey, I'm going to get you out of here. And you don't have much time, so you got to make bread that doesn't, you're not even going to have time for your bread to rise. So you're going to make unleavened bread, bread without yeast. You're going to get bread to go. <laughs> and, and you're going to go, but I will be with you. And I want you to, uh, you, they sacrifice the lamb, and they put the blood on the doorpost to mark, hey, God, I, I know that you're for me, and I know that you'll protect me. And then they left, and they ce celebrate that every year. The, the purpose of Passover is to remember what God has done. And Hezekiah is calling them in. Hey guys, we have forgotten about God for so long. Please come in and remember. Come and celebrate Passover. Verse 2, the kings and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. They had not been able to, to catch this, they had not been able to celebrate it at a regular time. Why? 
because there weren't enough priests. <laughs> There's not enough priests that had consecrated themselves, that were set apart to be sacred. The, 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 and the people had not, they had not assembled in Jerusalem. Nobody had come. For years, it, it says here that it had not been celebrated for a long time. The plan seemed right to both the king and the whole assembly. They get traction. Go to verse 6. And this, so so at, at the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king, from his officials, which read this. And again, pay attention to the verbs. People of Israel, return. It's time. Return to the Lord, the God of, remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember Jacob, remember Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped the hand of the kings of Assyria. There's not many of us left, but let's return to God. Do not be like your parents, verse 7, and your fellow Israelites who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their ancestors, so that you may... So that he made them an object of horror, as you have seen. And what he's talking about here is the Assyrians were brutal in their attacks. They were the masters of the siege, which is like surround a city and just wait them out, starve them out. And then like put, they would literally put corpses on, on poles. They would pile up heads and put them like right in front of the wall. Like, hey, this is, this is where you're going. I mean, they were brutal. And, and, and Hezekiah calls that out. He says, don't be like your parents who were unfaithful and your ancestors who, so that he made them an object of horror as you have seen. This has happened in our lifetime. Do not be stiff-necked as your ancestors were. Here's a verb. Submit. Submit. That's a good one. We, it, it, one of the things we can do to be generous towards God is to submit to him. Come to his sanctuary, which has been consecrated forever. Serve the Lord. I'm going to put come and serve up there. Because one of the ways that we can be generous towards God is we can come. <laughs> we can go. We can, we can commit to, to assembling together like they did. Um, serve. Sir, we can serve God. We can say, Lord, I, want, I, want to, I don't want to just give my money. I want to give my time towards you. I want to serve my neighbor. I want to serve with young life. I want to serve. There's so many ways that we can serve. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your fellow Israelites and your children will be shown compassion by their captors. And this is so interesting because he tips his hand a little bit. He's saying, guys, eventually we're going to be taken over. It's inevitable, but not yet, but not yet, but, but be shown by our, their captors and will return to this land for the Lord, your God, is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. I'm going to just say that to you. Everybody look at me. Did you know that God is compassionate? He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Everything that you give to him, he will use. He will be in compassion. He'll be like, oh, let's go. He'll roll up his sleeves and be like, oh, let's get started. The couriers, verse 10, went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh. As far as Zebulun, I have no clue where that is, but it's, maybe it's far. 
But people, listen to this, but people scorned and ridiculed them. They, they got pushback. Not everybody's like, oh, sweet, road trip. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves. There's another verb. They humbled themselves. They didn't have this attitude towards God that was like, well, if God was real, God, you, you show up. No, they humbled themselves. Where are we at? What verse? 12, also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity in mind, to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. A very large crowd of people assembled in Jerusalem. That's a good verb. A lot of times in our, in our individualistic culture, it's, it's a, our spirituality is all about us. And in what's important with the Old Testament, it was a very communal, communal setup. And that's God's in, intent for us, even not as Israel, is he wants us to not only be with him, but be with him together with each other. So they assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that is Passover, in the second month. They removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altars, which were not part of the Jewish religion, and threw them into the Kidron Valley. They slaughtered, we won't put that verb up, they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed. And they consecrated themselves, meaning more priests started to consecrate themselves. Hey, what, we, we need to come back. We need to return. And brought burnt offerings to the temple. They took up irregular positions as prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests splashed against the altar the blood handed to them by the Levites. Since many of the crowds, by the way, the whole sacrifice thing is super weird to us. We need to talk about that. Honestly, I think if we were there, it would not be as weird to us. We'd be like, oh, this is a barbecue. Because actually, the, like 90% of the sacrifices were eaten by the, the people who brought them. Which is really, really cool if you think about it. God's like, hey, I want you to bring a sacrifice to me. And, at, like, and, and like, let's take, for instance, the sin offering. Hey, if you've sinned, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a lamb or a bull or even a dove, whatever you can afford. It was by tax bracket. I'm serious, and you bring that before me, and as a result of your sin, after we're done with that, I want you to gather together your community as you've come back to me, as you've returned to me, we're going to have a party, and we're going to eat that bull, we're going to eat that goat, we're going to eat that lamb. Isn't that cool? You know, it's, it, and that's, a, that's the fragrance that was, was offered and pleasing to the Lord. That's what was going on here in Passover. It was a giant party. They were ashamed. So they consecrated themselves. Um, where am I? Verse 18? Yeah, let's go 18. Although most of, of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun had not purified themselves, they still ate the Passover, contrary to what it was written. And this is really fascinating. So you've got a bunch of people who are violating the temple code. You're not, unless you're consecrated, it's a big deal to, to say, hey, I'm going along with it. Check out Hezekiah's response to this. May the Lord, who is good, this is his prayer for them, pardon everyone who sets their hearts on seeking God. Hey, these people are seeking God. They're just doing it in the wrong way. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, 
even if they are, they are not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. In a post-Christian nation that we're in right now, it's important for us as a church to understand that. There are going to be people who are coming in and they're seeking God and, and they don't know how to do it. And like Hezekiah, we must be gracious towards them. That's kind of why we exist as a church, if you know our story. And the Lord heard Hezekiah, and he went with it. He healed the people. Isn't that cool? Isn't this awesome? I know, I know we're reading a ton, but it's so rich. Verse 21, the Israelites that were present in Jerusalem celebrated. I want that verb up here. This isn't all just like, hey, God, I'm going to sacrifice this to you. Hey, God, I'm going to give this up. Hey, God, I'm going to stop doing this, although all of that's important. Some of what's returning to God and some of the ways that we can make space in our lives and we can give him something to work with is we can celebrate. You can have a hard week, a week where you feel down, where, where you feel like a poser, where you feel like whatever, and be like, no, tomorrow, Lord, here's what I'm going to give to you. I'm going to forget all of that, and I'm just going to celebrate who you are. Isn't that cool? Isn't that great? That, that's a, something we can offer to God. He loves us. Uh, they celebrated the festival on loving bread for seven days with great rejoicing while the, the, the Levites and priests praised the Lord every day with resounding instruments dedicated to the Lord. I love this. Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed, uh, showed good understanding for the service of the Lord. For the seven days they ate their assigned portions of the fellowship. Uh, skip down to... Um, verse 23, the whole assembly, so seven days has gone by. They've been off, they've been not working for seven days. The whole assembly then agreed to celebrate the festival seven more days. Why? Because generosity towards God is the best way to return to him. You want to feel God's presence, be generous to him. Give him another seven days and see what happens. So for another seven days, they celebrated joyfully. I'm going to put a couple more uh, verbs up there. What else did I miss? Did you see any? Is there praised? There's one more. What was the other one that we just read? Uh, oh, rejoiced. Yeah, joyful. Yeah. They praised. They rejoiced. Hezekiah, verse 24, king of Judah, provided a thousand bulls because people need something to eat. That's how many people were there. That's, that, that's, it, it, it was the seven, and 7,000 sheep and goats for the assembly. And, uh, and the officials have provided them a thousand bulls and 10,000 sheep and goats. A great number of priests, again, consecrated themselves. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced along with the priests and the Levites, and, catch this, all who were assembled in Israel, including the foreigners. Like, like people just started showing up, like, what is going on? And they got swept up in what was going on, who had come from Israel and also those who resided in Judah. Then there was great joy in Jerusalem. Let's skip down. I know I, wanted, I just want to keep reading this, but that's okay. Verse 31. This is so incredible. When all this had ended... The Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah. So the, the party is done. They've been in Jerusalem for two weeks now. And it's time to go home. And this is what happens. Israelites who were there went out into the towns of Judah, meaning their homes, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles, 
they destroyed the high places, all of those places of worship that were not to Yahweh, to Baal, to Asherah, to, to those gods from other nations. Throughout Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh, which is basically north and south and east and west, after they had destroyed all of them, the Israelites returned to their towns and to their own property. You know why? They came away. The reason they, they, they did that is because they came away from the presence of God changed. And I need to quote our own illustrious Chris Donoff here. This is something I remember her telling. She has no clue what I'm saying, about to say right now. But she was a worship leader in, uh, in the 90s and early 2000s in our, in our church. I remember her telling our teams this, this phrase right here. When worship occurs, change occurs. I'm sure it wasn't original to you, but like it, it's original to you in my mind because you're the one that said it over and over again. When worship occurs, when true worship occurs, we're different. That's why worship's so important. You want change in your life? Go get a book. Go to Barnes and Noble and, and get a, a book that will help you change. But don't forsake worship of the true God. Don't forsake coming into the presence of the living God who made you, right? This makes perfect sense. You get closer to the person who made you, you find out what you're made to do. When worship occurs, change happens. Change occurs. It's inevitable when true worship occurs. And, they, and when worship occurs, you go home and you smash the things that are destroying you. You destroy the things that you're like, this is not worth my time. You know, you, you, you tear down the things in your life that God doesn't want. And it becomes easier. Not that it's going to be easy, but it becomes easier because you have a perspective. You've worshipped. You've been in the presence of a holy God. So honestly, worship. We, we don't have worship up here yet. We have praise. Worship. Honestly, let, you could commit to worshiping God on a regular basis. Lord, I'm going to, for this month, I'm only going to listen to praise and worship music. I'm going to turn off the podcast and turn off the radio. And you guys know me. I, like, I don't listen to much K-Love. I'm not a huge K-Love fan. But like, th there's something about when we, what we listen to. We're meditating on that. What if you did that? What if you gave the Lord that? What might he do in your mind? We need to wrap up. But what's incredible, in the next chapter, it just keeps going. Hezekiah keeps leading them strongly, saying, oh, no, oh, no, come on. We need to fix this. We need to consecrate ourselves to God. Consecrate is this. Put that slide up, consecrate. To make or declare something sacred or holy. That's what, we're, that's what I'm asking you to do. Take something in your life and declare it, no, this is holy. This first 30 minutes of every day is dedicated to you, Lord, and I will show up even if I don't feel like you do. I'm going to do it for the next month. I'm going to do it for these two weeks. I'm going to do it for, I'm, I'm going to finally read the Bible. I'm going to finally what, memorize scripture. This is, I'm going to consecrate and make something and declare it sacred or holy. So they just keep going. It's so cool. Um, Skip to the last part of chapter 31, verse 20. This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah. 
doing what is good and right and faithful before the Lord his God in everything that he undertook in the service of the temple of God's temple and in obedience to the law and commands. He sought his God and he worked wholeheartedly. And so he prospered. Why? Because he was generous with the Lord and the ones who give him the most see the most. What's it for you? What would it mean for you to give God something to work with in your life right now? Something, that, something that's generous. Something that makes you feel a little bit vulnerable. I don't know if I can give all of that. But Lord, I'm going to give it anyway. I'm going to step out in faith and see if you can prove to be trustworthy. And you can submit, you can humble, you can come, you can serve. Humble, you can confess your sins. We talked about that last week. Like, for some of us, giving something God for God to work with is being honest. And, and putting ourselves out there with our spouse or with, with a good friend or with someone we trust. Yeah, God, maybe you've confessed it to God. That's a good start. Sometimes we need to confess it to man, too. We need to, for some of us, it's obeying even, it's obedience right now, to be obedient about something. It's bringing in the full tithe. It's giving up something that controls us. It's taking refuge in God instead of of substances or TV or something else. Um, It's committing to coming to church every Sunday. It's... uh, Stopping hanging out with a group of friends. It's, it's like I said in the beginning, only you can answer this. Only you can be generous with God, and really only you can fill in this blank right now. What does it mean for you to be generous with God? And what might happen if you did? I, I would propose that, I mean, really, I was like, okay, so this, I was thinking this week, I was like, their context, Hezekiah's and Israel's context is so different than ours. Is this even relatable, like the whole temple thing and sacrifice? And I'm like, yeah, it's relatable. It was sweet. They just wanted to be together. Something came from it that was so sweet. They they went away and they did something courageous. We all want that. So what's it for you? And what might be waiting on the other side if you do? Again, raw materials. We can't answer what what God might do. We just need to hand him the two-by-four, hand him the box of nails, hand him the raw materials, and see what he might build with it. I dare you to do it, to do it this week. Let's pray. God, we, um, we humble ourselves before you. I pray that we would be people in a, in a post-Christian world that say, oh, no. Oh, no, my, my, my community is, is slipping away from God. Oh, no, my, my heart is sleep, slipping away from God. I pray that we would be people that would say, oh, no, after a week of just doing our thing, and we, we didn't even give you a second thought. I pray that we would be people like Hezekiah that would, it would cause us to say, oh, no, God, I want to return. I want to come back. Lord, we, uh, like the Israelites, I pray that we would offer you something today, that in a sense we would lay it on the altar today as we sing these worship songs, that you would stir in our hearts what we can offer to you and that we would be courageous enough to offer it and then see what you might do. Lord, we know 
you are trustworthy. And for those of us who don't know that you're trustworthy, I pray that these, these days and this week and weeks to come, they might find you trustworthy by offering and being generous with you. I pray all this in your name. Amen.